Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with me, Tony Honigberg. Me, Diana Toman. And me, Clive Roslin. Coming up this week, we have Rabbi Jeff Berger, the Sephardi rabbi, who's going to talk about his life, his work and his future plans before he retires from the Borenwood Sephardi congregation. We are talking to Simon Pegisi from the Nightingale Hammerson Home. He is the Director of Care and Services and to talk about their outstanding rating from the Care Quality Commission. And our final guest today is Gideon Falter from the Campaign Against Antisemitism. They are calling for Jeremy Corbyn to resign or stand down following a petition of 20,000 signatures saying that Corbyn must go. But before all that, let's get a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week. Labour is facing a fresh storm over allegations of anti-Semitism at the top of the party after former Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs compared Jeremy Corbyn's comments on Zionists with Enoch Powell's inflammatory Rivers of Blood speech. Lord Sachs's remarks, in which he branded Mr Corbyn an anti-Semite who supported racists, terrorists and dealers of hate, drew an angry response from Labour. Condemnation of the leader of the opposition by the crossbench peer who served as chief rabbi between 1991 and 2013 comes just a week before Labour's ruling National Executive Committee considered its code of conduct on anti-Semitism. Labour hit back at the comments by branding them absurd and offensive. Lord Sachs's remarks came after footage from 2013 emerged of Mr Corbyn attacking a group of British Zionists who'd criticised Palestinian ambassador Manuel Hassassian. A petition branding Jeremy Corbyn anti-Semitic and saying he must go has passed 20,000 signatures. An initiative launched by the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism is seeking to remove the Labour leader after a string of incidents involving events he's appeared at previously. The appeal gathered storm after being launched on Sunday, hitting 22,000 signatures on Tuesday morning, urging action after events from Jeremy Corbyn's disturbing past have trickled into light. Upon launching the petition, the chairman of the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, Gideon Falter, said it's time for Jeremy Corbyn to step down as Labour leader, saying he's unfit for any public office. More from Mr Falter after this bulletin. Dozens of firefighters evacuated a part of the building housing the French Parliament following the mailing there of a letter containing slurs against an MP and white powder. The letter read, Fat Zionist pig, you're not French, was opened by an employee of Maya Habib's office. At least 40 firefighters and 20 police officers were dispatched to the seat of the National Assembly, the French Parliament's lower house in Paris. They evacuated the building. Tributes have been pouring in for playwright Neil Simon after he passed away aged 91. Mr Simon, who died of pneumonia in hospital, was described as a clutch hitter by fellow Jewish writer and producer Mel Brooks, with whom he worked in the 1950s. Mr Brooks said he was one of the sweetest and least jealous writers you could ever work with. The Pulitzer-winning playwright received more Tony and Oscar nominations than any other writer and is best known for work such as The Odd Couple, the Sunshine Boys, Barefoot in the Park and Goodbye Girl. 
a pocket watch with Hebrew letters on its face that belonged to a Jewish-Russian immigrant who died aboard the Titanic, sold at auction for £45,000. Heritage Auctions offered the watch at its headquarters in Dallas in a public auction of important Americana memorabilia. The watch, which featured Moses holding the Ten Commandments on its back, was purchased by John Miotl, a collector of timepieces relating to the Titanic disaster. The news this week. First on the Jewish Views this week, Jack Mendel, our online editor, joins us to review your copy of the Jewish News. Now, Jack, let's have a look at the front page, which has got a stunning photograph of Enoch Powell looking very stern. And the headline is, Oh, the irony. Lord Sachs accuses lifelong anti-racist Corbyn of giving the most offensive political speech since Enoch Powell. Are we talking about rivers of blood here? We are, we are. I, I never thought I'd have Enoch Powell on the front of the Jewish news. It's, Indeed. It is bizarre times we're living in. And this week, probably the one man that's synonymous with the Jewish community for the rest of the country, Lord Sachs, former chief rabbi and intellectual heavyweight, waded into the debate on Labour anti-Semitism and accused Jeremy Corbyn of being an anti-Semite. He didn't mince his words. And then he said that Jeremy Corbyn's speech from 2013, where he accused British Zionists of not understanding English irony, which was taken by many as being racism, that speech was, according to Lord Sachs, the most offensive political speech by a British politician since the infamous Rivers of Blood speech. It's extremely serious as an allegation and Labour have sought to rubbish it. There's no stock press release from them this time. They've called it absurd and offensive and then said that Jeremy Corbyn is against all forms of anti-Semitism and all forms of racism as per usual. But this is a shocking headline. It's a shocking accusation from Lord Sachs and in some senses... It does the trick because everyone's looking up. Listen, Jack, it's taken him three years to say something. So having met him in the past uh, on various occasions, he does not just open his mouth and blabber. He thinks very carefully about what he says and what he writes. And I and I think he's been thinking about this for a long time. And I think he's come out with the accusation, which is possibly correct. It's difficult to know if it's correct. Mm. I usually try not to go against what Lord Sachs says because he's an extremely intelligent man. I don't think it's an accusation I would have made myself. But as I say, I think it's the shock factor, really. When you come out with something like that, people look up and you ask, why is he making that accusation? And then you look into the backlog of accusations that Jeremy Corbyn has levelled at him at the moment. And you can see that why there's so much anger. It's not just because of what Corbyn said in the past. But it's also because of what he's not said. He's not Mm. acted. He's not sat down with the Jewish community face to face and tackled the issues at hand. But uh, when challenged with the evidence at hand, as Lord Sachs says, first Corbyn denies, then he equivocates, then he obfuscates. And it's true. The number of times I've seen statements and press releases from the Labour Party not addressing the issue at hand, it's very, very frustrating. And the only conclusion that some have uh, been led to is that he's just willing to sweep it under the carpet and not address it head on. Yeah, well, at least this time, they actually, as you said before, they haven't come out with just a standard press release and they've actually said something a bit different. So that is possibly a good thing. 
There seems to be lengthy responses for Lord Sachs and Margaret Hodge and Ian mm. Austin, who are standing up for the Jewish community, and stock responses for those accused of anti-Semitism, which riles many people up as well. Indeed. What else have you got? Yes. Uh, let's move away from Labour anti-Semitism. Let's move away to something a little bit lighter, I think. You may remember the Jewish News held the Night of Heroes Awards back in February. And one of the people that were given an award on that night was Norman Rosenbaum. He got the Community Hero Award for having raised money for 11 ambulances for Magen David Adom. And today, the Prime Minister in the UK, Theresa May, has honoured him with a Points of Light Award, which is a kind of award that picks out people who do amazing things, who selflessly volunteer and raise money and contribute to society. And it's long overdue because he is a remarkable man. He was, he's a former surgeon. He spent most of his life saving other people's lives. Mm. And in retirement, he's worked very, very hard to collect all this money for ambulances, which have so far treated over 60,000 people. And he's, and he's no youngster. He's no youngster, but age is just a number. Yeah, so. absolutely. That's a very uplifting story, Jack, after the first one that we heard about. What have you got for us next? Yes, the, the BBC are about to air a very interesting series called We Are British Jews, in which they get eight British Jews from across the spectrum. You have Orthodox Jews and Progressive Jews from the political spectrum right across as well. And they give the country an insight into British Jews. I don't think this programme is particularly meant for our community. It's meant for the rest of the country to see what our community is like. And we spoke to the producer of this programme, who is called Lucy Conn, who is herself Jewish. And she has spoken of the kind of the huge obligation that she felt to get the series right, to reflect British Jews in the correct way and to show the plurality of views and opinions that are on offer. So this is right across the UK? Yes. They start off in Manchester, where they go volunteering with the CST, mm -hmm. and they get an insight into the security concerns. And then they go to Israel, they go to the Western Wall, they go to Hebron, which is, of course, in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. And you really do get an insight. I mean, there are people on this trip who have never been to Israel before, but are kind of ardently pro-Israel. You get Orthodox, strictly Orthodox people. And you get kind of the young, they would probably call themselves anti-Zionist students who are very critical of Israel. You, you really do get a kind of a spectrum of opinions and it should be a really interesting insight. In your opinion, Jack, do you think they would have been better to do it with a group of non-Jewish people to show the non-Jewish people how the Jewish community are? No, not really, because I, I think that the purpose of this is to give everyone an insight into what it's like to be a British Jew and to, in some ways, break down the stereotype that British Jews just live in Stamford Hill and wear black coats, yes. because not all Jews are like that. And this is a bulwark, as it were, towards the uh, anti-Semitism that, that appears to be taking over the news. Yes. You open even secular, normal newspapers like the Metro or the Evening Standard, mm. and you can see stories about anti-Semitism in there now. So, yes, this is a cultural story. It's a positive story. And it's a way to showcase the British Jewish community. And when does that go out? This goes out on Tuesday and Wednesday, 4th and 5th of September, BBC Two, 9pm. It's a two-part series, so tune in.
And that's where we'll have to leave it for this week, but thank you very much indeed, Jack. And don't forget you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Following the constant stream of revelations about the Labour Party over the past several weeks, campaign against anti-Semitism has called for Jeremy Corbyn to resign or be made to stand down. With me today is Gideon Forter, Chairman of Campaign Against Anti-Semitism. Gideon, thank you for coming on the programme today. We've had weeks or even months of the Jeremy Corbyn debacle. Do you believe that there's even the minutest chance that Jeremy Corbyn will resign his post or even that his party will make him stand down and... And if he does, or they make him stand down, who will take over the leadership and will we in any way be in a better position? Well, throughout this, we've been very conscious of two obligations. One obligation is to the Jewish community, and that is an obligation to ensure that we put forward views which reflect the Jewish community in a good light. And I think in doing so, it's very important for us to be very measured in what we say and very careful and very evidenced in what we say. The second obligation is our obligation as a charity to not be doing anything which is party political unless it relates very clearly to anti-Semitism. So throughout this, I, I would say that we've probably been several steps behind saying the things that some of us would want to say, simply because we want to be extremely measured in the way that we speak and we want to be very careful in what we call for. Unfortunately, in answer to your question... It doesn't seem very likely that Jeremy Corbyn will resign because Jeremy Corbyn is not a decent person. Resigning is something that a decent person does generally, even if they've done something awful. If they've got a shred of decency left, they will usually fall on their sword. But Jeremy Corbyn doesn't appear to have that shred of decency. So instead, what we're left with is a situation where Jeremy Corbyn has to be forced to stand down or MPs need to decide that they no longer wish to remain a part of the Labour Party. Now, we don't really want to be dictating or trying to dictate to the Labour Party or the Labour MPs what they should be doing. But what we are very clear on is that Jeremy Corbyn, as leader of the Labour Party, represents somebody who is putting forward an anti-Semitic viewpoint and somebody whose actions are turning the Labour Party into an anti-Semitic institution. And so we don't think that the Labour Party should want that or that Labour MPs should want to be associated with that. And at some point there's going to come this crunch, isn't there? Because we know that Jeremy Corbyn remains popular amongst the membership of the Labour Party. And so if the membership of the Labour Party are content to continue with an anti-Semite as their leader, then really Labour MPs are going to be left in a very sticky position of having to decide either that they are going to remain with an anti-Semite as their leader or they have to decide that they are going to um, leave the party that some of them have spent decades as a member of. I think Margaret Hodge, for example, has been a member of the Labour Party for 50-odd years. Do you think, if he stays as party leader, do you think there'll be a breakaway party then? It's possible? very difficult to predict what might happen. For example, in 2014, if you imagine, before Jeremy Corbyn came on the scene, all that anybody in the community was talking about with regard to anti-Semitism was anti-Semitic crime and what had happened during the Gaza conflict in 2014. None of us imagined 
the political scenario in which we now find ourselves, where one of the two mainstream parties has basically become institutionally anti-Semitic and filled with proponents of anti-Semitism. And so it's very, very hard to predict what happens next, because we didn't see any of this coming. In 2015, when Jeremy Corbyn stood as a candidate to take the Labour leadership, we identified him, we started talking publicly about the things that he'd done in his past. At that point, I don't think a lot of people were uh, ready or willing to listen to that kind of messaging yet. I think now people have woken up to what is being said, and it's by no means just us saying it anymore either. But the point is that everything we've done so far has been a reaction to political reality. And if I could predict with any great certainty what might happen next... I might be <laughs> either much more concerned than I am or much more comforted than I am. But what I hope will happen next is that British decency and a particularly British love of tolerance will prevail and that the public will reject anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, that Labour members perhaps even will reject anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And let's not forget, the Labour Party used to be the party that really forged itself partly around the battle against racism. Mm -hmm. And it was the natural home for Jewish people for years, something like 70, 75% of the community, according to different accounts, used to vote Labour. And if you were to take that poll now, you would see that the support for the Labour Party in the Jewish community has utterly collapsed. And I think that basically is an indicator of where we are. Is the Labour Party itself beyond repair? No, I think the Labour Party can be repaired. Can Jeremy Corbyn be the person to repair it? Certainly not. You can't have an anti-Semite who excises a party of anti-Semitism. In my line of work, I'm obviously mixed with a lot of people who aren't of the Jewish faith as well. When I talk to them, they will say, I can't see what the fuss is about. We don't see this anti-Semitism label at all. And these people that I know personally, and I know they're not anti-Semitic in any way, but they can't see Jeremy Corbyn as an anti-Semite. And they are wondering what the fuss is all about. And I'm just wondering, are the general public getting fed up with Jeremy Corbyn and the anti-Semitism within the Labour Party coming to the fore day after day, week after week? Is it diluting it in any way because we are having a go at it so often? I think that, first of all, we don't have a choice because these things keep coming to light. And when they come to light, we have to comment on them. We can't let these things go without comment. So the fact that we're talking about it so much, I think, is really a reflection of the fact that there is so much material about Jeremy Corbyn coming to light, but also a reflection of the fact that this is certainly, without a shadow of a doubt, the gravest challenge that the Jewish community has faced in this country, certainly in my lifetime. And for many people who are outside the Jewish community, I think they come from two different camps. I think there is a camp which says, of those who think that Jeremy Corbyn is not an anti-Semite, there's a camp that says, I really want to like Jeremy Corbyn because I like his policies about the NHS or tuition fees or what have you. And I like his policies so much, I don't want to believe anybody who attacks Jeremy Corbyn because I want to like him so much. So you've got that narrative, which is stopping people from believing that Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite. There's also the other side of the coin, which says 
basically that there is a Jewish conspiracy to undermine Jeremy Corbyn because he doesn't like Israel or he's going to do things against rich people and everybody knows that the Jews are rich. And if anything happens to Jeremy Corbyn, there's going to be a backlash and boy, are the Jews going to get it. And that, I think, is more worrying and more and becoming much louder recently. And in terms of what the Jewish community can do, we're really stuck between a rock and a hard place because, according to polls, about a third of the population think that Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite. About a third think that he isn't. And about a third don't know. Hmm. And so really the battle is for the don't knows in the middle. And we have the option of either being quiet and hoping that the problem solves itself, which I think was the reaction of a lot of people in the community in 2015 when we started making a lot of noise about this. And we got an awful lot of criticism from people in the community saying, will you please stop having a go at Jeremy Corbyn? We'd prefer to keep quiet about this Keep in the background, I guess. Yes. And so there's that option of being quiet. But so far, the sorry tale that we're living through tells us that being quiet won't help address the problem. The problem will get worse. The other option is to keep talking about this. And as we do that, we find that we get more and more people saying, gosh, I don't know, this isn't really helping me advance anything. And so what we've tried to do in the last few days as campaign against anti-Semitism is say, look, we've established with about a third of the population that Jeremy Corbyn's an anti-Semite. The accusations and going back through the evidence clearly aren't resonating with some people. And what resonates with those people is the classic liberal progressive message of solidarity with a vulnerable community. And so we're saying to them, not so much with accusations, but more in an emotional way as a plea for solidarity. Look, when a community like ours speaks out, as it has not done for really its entire history in this country, when we speak out in this way, in such a united voice, with rabbis from every denomination coming across with all of the Jewish newspapers, that you've got to listen. And even if you want to just leave the politics aside, and just talk about solidarity with the community. That's what we need. We just need to see that you are together with us, you stand together with us. And so that's why we've launched in the last few days our Together Against Anti-Semitism campaign, yes, sure where that that, we've, we've launched a hashtag, Together Against Anti-Semitism. We've launched a website, togetheragainstantisemitism.com. And we're asking people to take simple steps, which are really just gestures to show solidarity with the community. For example, changing their Twitter or Facebook profile photo to show a little badge which says together against anti-Semitism. And we think that by spreading that kind of a message, hopefully we'll be able to get through to people who have been turned off completely by what they see as a political fight. And hopefully they will understand that this is really much more about just showing solidarity with the community and standing up to racism. And it's not about politics. We've also just had Lord Saxes come on board as well and being a bit outspoken also against Jeremy Corbyn, echoing views put forward by yourselves, really. Yes, he said something remarkably similar to what we said, mm. and he's absolutely right. And Lord Sachs is somebody who measures his words extremely carefully. He hasn't spoken out an awful lot during this entire crisis. Over the course of three years, he's been very careful to intervene very infrequently. And when he does, he's very, very careful about what he says. So 
there's no coincidence that he has chosen the timing of speaking out now, that he has said the words that he said. You know, we've already heard from people saying, oh, he went a little bit far. But the fact is that really he was very, very measured. He, he's, he's said that Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite, which I think is something that could have been said for a long time now. And he's said that he represents an immense danger to British society in much the same way as there was an immense danger posed to British society by far-right extremists of the past. And I think that what he's drawn upon in a very uniquely Lord Sachs way is he's pointing out, really, that there is very little difference between the far-right and the far-left when you get onto the extremes of either. And what he's telling us is that the community as a whole, the wider British public community, not just the Jewish community, needs to be very afraid of the change that Jeremy Corbyn represents. Yes, because at the moment everybody says, well, it's only against the Jews, but they don't think of themselves later on, of course. Thank you very much for coming on the program today, Gideon. Could you just finally give us the website where people can get in touch? Yes. So if they want to join the Together Against Antisemitism campaign, they should go to togetheragainstantisemitism.com. And there are instructions there both for signing up for further updates and also changing their profile pictures on Facebook and Twitter to include the Together Against Antisemitism badge. Thank you very much for taking time out. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. If you would like any more information on any of the stories or indeed the guests featured on this episode of The Jewish Views, then you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And I have next to me Jeff Berger, who's the Sephardi rabbi, who's going to talk about his life and his work and his future plans because he's stepping down from being the founding rabbi of the Rambam Sephardi congregation in Boreham Wood. And he's leaving after more than seven years. Rabbi Berger, why are you doing that? I thought you would start with an easier question than that, Clive, but thank (laughs) you so much. Seven and a half years has been a a really wonderful run with the Rambam Sephardi synagogue. We started in January of 2011. We were initially supported by the Spanish and Portuguese Jews congregation under the leadership then of Rabbi Abraham Levy, OBE. It was a very challenging start. We came to a community where there was no building, no infrastructure, um, just a handful of Sephardim who had approached the Spanish and Portuguese community to see whether they could provide a rabbi. And experimentally, in 2010, I went uh, on a monthly basis and we conducted services until there seemed to be enough traction uh, to warrant a move to the neighborhood. Um, But in January 2011, we started, we had zero members, we had no books, we had a loaned Safer Torah that we owed to the Spanish and Portuguese at Lauderdale Road. In fact, that Safer Torah had been written in Syria, in Aram Soba, in the late 1800s, and it was very large and uh, bulky, and it was not even housed at Lauderdale Road at the time. It had been on loan to another synagogue in Edgware, and we went and collected it from there in order to start our new community. Thankfully, as of the end of July 2018, when I officially did step down from the day-to-day running of the community, we have now achieved a membership of over 60 families, 
thank God most of our families, as you know, in that neighborhood are young, uh, newly married. They're just starting to build their homes. And as a result, we have over 100 children in the community. And I feel that it's important to give a younger rabbi an opportunity to take this community to another level. But you're a young rabbi yourself. Well, I remember when you were at the Montefiore College. Thank you very much. This may shock some of your listeners, but uh, this year I turned 60. You're young. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay. So I would say that I think each person has a particular skill set. My skill set has always been to try and create new things, to get them started up and running. And in the early years of uh, creating the Rambam Safari Synagogue, it always felt as if we were planting seeds. We never knew what was going to sprout. There were many occasions where we would show up at the rented hall where we had our services in Alum Lane, and we would not know whether there would be a minyan, whether there would be twice as many people. And each day and each week, we felt that we were just trying to put bricks into place, spiritual, figurative bricks into place, to build a structure that would have a kind of permanence. And though we don't own a building. We now are based at the Yavna College sixth form block. Thankfully, the synagogue can run very well without me. It's very interesting, isn't it, that um, you decided not to be part of the whole Sephardi congregation. I mean, you're independent of Lauderdale Road, Beavers, Marks, and Wembley. Well, if we have to be honest, since this is an interview, it was not our decision uh, ah. to become independent. I believe that uh, the members of the Muhammad, when they uh, originally envisioned a community in Bormwood, they expected it was going to blossom overnight and uh, quickly achieve large numbers. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, in 2014, uh, we had only acquired about 22 member families, and they felt that perhaps it was uh, a premature decision to decide to move into Bormwood. And so rather than tried to incorporate us as a branch synagogue, we became an affiliate. An affiliate, which means that you're part of it, but you're not part of it. It means that um, from a practical point of view, we receive no financial support, but we access the Beit Din and uh, the Burial Society for communal purposes. So and it also means, does it, that you don't, you haven't come to Lauderdale Road or Beavis Marks or Wembley to take services there for a change? Yes. So in the run-up to my appointment as the rabbi at Rambam Sephardi Synagogue, from the time that I was ordained I, with my semicha in September of 2009 until 1st of January 2011, I was a kind of peripatetic preacher or roaming rabbi within the communities of the Spanish and Portuguese. So I've, I had many opportunities to conduct services at Bevis Marks and to be a guest at Wembley as well. Subsequently, they've appointed rabbis to both of those communities, and they didn't require. So what are you going to do now, now that you've um, stopped being rabbi of Bournemouth? Well, over the past five years, since 2013, I've spent a, a good bit of my spare time involved in the area of interfaith. And I very much would like to take that further. Specifically in 2013, I was uh, a fellow on a program called the Cambridge Coexist Leadership Program, which involved Christians, Muslims, and Jews. In 2015, I was uh, invited to be fellow at the Arianda Rothschild Program 
also with Christians, Muslims, and Jews, but it was people from many different countries, not just from the UK. And in 2016, I was very fortunate to develop an affiliation with the group now in Vienna called CHI-SEED. It's an acronym for an International Center for Interfaith and Interreligious Dialogue. With that organization, I've been fortunate to have a number of very positive experiences. We went to Sri Lanka to uh, observe what the conflict was like there between Hindus and Buddhists. I've attended some conferences where I've been able to meet very high-level faith leaders from around the world. In the end, it's going to be a very important mixture of all the, all the religions understanding each other and helping each other. Is that, your, is that what you're after? Yes, that, and that is what I'm after. I, I believe that, as it is quite well known, unfortunately today, too much of our thinking is siloed. We remain within our communities and we develop our own narratives and we, we lack the opportunity, or it seems like, if you look at social media, uh, we've lost the opportunity to truly dialogue, to recognize someone else's position, to put ourselves in their shoes, so to speak, to be compassionate and empathetic. Um, and I think that's an important subject that needs to be revived. And uh, specifically, I've approached the Spanish and Portuguese community and uh, some of the supporters of the S&P to see if they would be able to find a way to appoint me as a Sephardi representative for interfaith in the United Kingdom and abroad. I hope that they've agreed to do that. It's a work in progress. Jeff, can I just ask you, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with the term Rambam, what exactly does it mean? Well, Rambam is the name of the great Sephardi sage Maimonides who lived in the 1100s, dying in the early 1200s. He was a believer of the, what we would call the sort of the modern, moderate way of connecting Judaism ritual practice with day-to-day -day life. I mean, I think that's one of the things that Sephardim have done very well, certainly during the period of the, the medieval period, during the period of Andalusia, when they lived, coincided, coexisted, when Sephardi leaders were uh, heads of the cabinet, uh, second only to the monarch of the time. Don Isaac Abarbanel is an example of such. I believe that the experience of Ashkenazim and the experience of Sephardim in the host countries where they lived, certainly pre-1948, before the State of Israel was established, was very different. There, there was, I think, a much more interdependent sense of relationship, of coexistence, and of, of mutual respect. You're leaving the Rambam Synagogue. Yeah. Who is going to take over? Do they have someone that's taking over from you? Well, we, we have put out um, an, an advertisement looking for a replacement, and we're more than welcome to have applicants. Uh, so far, it's an ongoing process. Mm. I can tell you that we've also approached the Montefiore Colel, the uh, school from which I gained my uh, right. ordination, right. Uh, as well as the uh, Sephardi Beitin and some of the leadership, Rabbi Dweck, Rabbi Levy. Hmm. We've asked everyone whom we know if they can uh, put forward any candidates. Because such a small community, it would be a shame if it dwindled away and, and all your congregants then had to go back to the other shores in the area. Well, we hope that's, yes. that won't happen. I mean, uh, I, I think that it's a strong community. It's very you know, cohesive at this point. And, and what I'd like to tell you a little about, a bit about, if there's time, 
is the wonderful creativity of our community, because that, I think, is what makes Rambam unique. We are known for several signature events. We created a Tubishvat Seder, which is something that most people overlook. It is the day of the celebration of the anniversary of the trees. We produce a spread that has over 70 varieties of fruit, things that come from all over the world. Our dedicated members go to the wholesale fruit markets in the middle of the night to find things just so that we have a table that is overladen with the beautiful abundance of, of God's blessings. Second to that, we have a Purim celebration where we have a reading of the Megillah and a full costumed staged play that is bespoke. It's written every year by a woman named Rivka David, who is remarkably creative. And we have children and adults. They're using microphones. They've memorized their lines. We spend months preparing for it. Um, and that, I think, is unique among synagogues. And then the third thing that I would mention is that we sponsor what is called Camp Rambam. Camp Rambam, I believe we are the only synagogue in the United Kingdom who has an overnight camp for children. We started that camp because we have in our community uh, families that can't afford, uh, you know, very expensive uh, holidays. And on a subsidized basis, we provide breakfast, lunch, dinner, an activity in the morning, an activity in the afternoon, tents to sleep in. It's kosher. It's kosher catered. Uh, not catered, but it's, it's fully kosher vegetarian. And it's an experience that children have that lasts for an entire year. Seeing them in the outdoors, by a campfire, singing along, it's, it's really quite a, a remarkable experience. And I don't know any other community that has done that. So we say to people that we punch well above our weight for a community that now has 60 families, but we've been doing this for years already. We've been doing this when we had 22 families and 45 families, etc. So I believe that it is, it, it is a really beautiful community, and I hope that uh, if there are any listeners who know of candidates that would be appropriate for uh, taking over the rabbit. To let you know. Yes. I was going to ask you, what have been the biggest successes of your being at that synagogue? But I think you've just answered that. But what are the challenges that you had to face? Well, I, I guess one of the m most interesting challenges, uh, and I tell this in interfaith circles, is that the membership of our community is, is not uniform in that the background of the membership varies broadly. So we have, we have members who've come from Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Syria, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Spain, Italy, and other countries. England, perhaps? And some from England as well, yes. <laughs> Many from England. And the, the biggest challenge has always been getting them to agree on what Nusach to use. And I remember my first experience at Yom Kippur in 2009, we agreed that a certain person would be the chazan. And to my great surprise, suddenly the chazan was surrounded at the teba, at the reader's desk, by six people. And as soon as he started to sing, someone raised their hand and said, no, we don't do it that way. And on the other side of the table, there was another person who said, what are you talking about? We do it that way all the time. Rabbi Berger, thank you very, very much indeed, and I wish you every success in your future work. If you'd like any more information on any of the stories or the guests that you've heard in this episode of The Jewish Views, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Simon, let's talk first of all about your excellent, if I may say so, outstanding mm. elevation to the top one 
90% of nursing care homes nationwide because of the outstanding rating from the Care Quality Commission. Nightingale House has indeed been going for over, I think, 175 years. Is that correct? And mm. you took over Hammerson House in North London. When was that? So we took over Hammerson House, I think this is going back maybe three, four years ago. And since then, there was, I think it just made the organization as a whole much stronger because we were able to share resources, share experience, and be able to also consolidate sort of core competencies between the two organizations and the things that we were doing quite well. And has the reorganization of Hammerson the new buildings that are under construction at the moment, is that all since you moved in there? Yes, certainly. I think when we, when we merged with Hammerson, one of the things that I think uh, the new organization realized was that we wanted to provide future care in a future environment that would accommodate all the different care needs, including complex care needs. And I think the, the building at the time was one that wasn't going to allow us to be able to do that. Hence, the decision to redevelop the whole site. And you're in the process of doing that at the moment? Certainly, yes. When do you expect it to be available, as it were, to the people who might want to move in? Well, I think at the moment, I think it's something that is still in discussion in terms of exactly which would be the moving date, mainly because the challenges with buildings they take a long time and so sometimes there are hurdles which delay the process itself. And so at the moment, I think there's been just discussions around what's the sort of expected opening date and we haven't got an expected opening date that can be confirmed or publicized at the moment. And do you foresee that the move towards providing care for people suffering from dementia and the like are going to be in the ascendance, as it were, rather than independent living? Well, I think the principles of Hammerson House and the way that it's been designed is looking at just meeting the future community needs. Now, the great thing about the building and the way it's structured is that it, it will allow us to look after any level of care needs depending on who is available at the time. So it will be able to look at look after people who have got most advanced levels of care needs from a nursing perspective or independent living and or um, people who will be living with dementia. And I think that's the fantastic thing about the design. It's quite open and flexible. If we can concentrate on your visit from the CQC, the Care Quality Commission, was that actually to Nightingale House then? Yes, it was to Nightingale uh, in Clapham South. And what areas do they check? The Care Quality Commission, they look at all the areas of care delivery, as well as the areas of leadership, the areas of management, um, the areas of health and safety and the environment. The visit is based on key lines of inquiries, and there are five key lines of inquiries which focus on is the organization well-led, is it safe, is it caring? And some of the things that they will be considering in there is not only what they see on the day, but also evidence of all the interaction, notifications, uh, and incidences that will have happened since the last visit. So in this particular case, they were looking at over two and a half years. Are these ad hoc visits or do you know they're coming in advance? 
Well, if we knew they were coming, that would make <laughs> our life much easier. I'm sure it would. They, they, you they, must they, be under tremendous pressure. <laughs> well, it's, a, I, it, it, it's certainly because you prepare from the day that they leave and because you don't know exactly when they are coming. And so these are actually unannounced inspections. I mean, and I can see why it's important for them to be unannounced because at the end of the day, it's about demonstrating consistency in care, not just when you think the inspectors are coming in, so you put things in place. And all five areas of concern to the CQC, did mm -hmm. you in fact reach the top, top of the tree, as it were, in all five areas? We got three outstanding, which is the top rating that you can get in three of them. And then the other two, we got a good rating. And so good is just below the outstanding rating. And we're overall, as a care home, outstanding because you need two outstanding to become overall outstanding. And when you take over completely of Hammerson House, will the Nightingale House in the south of the river still go on operating? Will it be two separate organizations? So Nightingale Hammerson is one organization on two sides. That's the way we like to see it. So whatever standards, uh, competencies, experience, knowledge, and everything that has been developed is developed with a view that we need to emulate exactly the same level of standards and care across the two sides as one organization. Simon, that's extremely interesting. And we, all of us here wish you the very best of luck and congratulations. Thank you very much. Not all at all. Best. Thank you for talking to us. Take care. Good day. That's nearly it for this episode of The Jewish Views, but it's time now for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Jeff Berger, the founding rabbi of the Rambam Sephardic Congregation in Boringwood. For those paying careful attention, Kitabo teaches a profound lesson in joy and happiness. It takes courage to make such a bold statement in a parasha that includes at its end the most horrifying of curses. But in several places we find the word visamachta, and you shall rejoice, interspersed as a kind of sub-theme or undercurrent. The first occurrence is in the opening section where Moshe describes the experience of the unnamed farmer in the newly conquered land of Canaan who brings his basket of bikurim, first fruits, to the priests. After making a long declaration, the one included in the Passover Haggadah, about how our ancestors were oppressed in Egypt, there becoming a great nation until finally we were redeemed thanks to God's mercies, Moshe ends his soliloquy with a verse about happiness. And you will rejoice in all the goodness the Lord your God has given your household, you the Levite and the stranger in your midst. But why should this anonymous farmer be happy? Rabbi David Foreman of the animated Aleph Beta fame suggests, it is because he has witnessed the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the pledge to give their descendants the land of Canaan, and in so doing he has become a link in an important historical chain. And in his joy, importantly, our farmer has then shared of his wealth with those less fortunate. In the next chapter, and then in the chapter after that, the word simcha, happiness, appears again. When we look at these references, we see an unmistakable pattern 
that our mission as Jewish people is to serve the Almighty joyfully. When recognizing that we live in times so much greater than ever before in world history, with so much potential at our fingertips, we too can appreciate our link to the land of Israel and to the Torah's promises and be uplifted. Hopefully this awareness should help us prepare for Rosh Hashanah less than two weeks from now. As people who are thankful to the Almighty, appreciative of our abundant blessings, and willing to share them with others. In that way, may all of us merit a new year filled with peace, prosperity, good health, and much blessing. Shabbat Shalom. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you to our guests, Jeff Berger, Simon Pajizi, and Gideon Falter. Thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. For me, Clive Roslin. Me, Tony Honigberg. And me, Diana Toman. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.